attention computer-aided design software users. Are you tired of expensive subscriptions and constantly increasing prices? There's an alternative to high subscription pricing. It's called BricsCAD. It's innovative, fast and native DWG. It's totally compatible with what you know and it's available in a permanent lifetime license. If you know AutoCAD, you know BricsCAD. Try it for free for 30 days at Brixies.com. Then buy a lifetime license for less. That's B-R-I-C-S-Y-S.com. Lorna Bennett is a mechanical engineer working at the cutting edge of renewable energy development. From testing the world's largest ever wind turbine blades to working on the UK's first grid-connected tidal power array, Lorna is helping to inform and change our energy future away from the hydrocarbon-reliant past. Lorna, welcome to Engineering Matters. Thank you, Bernadette. It's so nice to meet you. Tell us, what inspired you to work in renewable energy? Well, I've always been interested by self-sustainability. I grew up in a very small village in central Scotland, not far from Glasgow, but rural enough that small population. In the winter, when we'd have power cuts, uh, we were always quite low in the list of priorities, as opposed to the all the towns on the west coast that had no power. Um, my parents' house is 200 years old, and we were one of the first six houses in the village to have their house connected to the electricity network when electricity became mainstream. And over the years, the weights of these cables were much heavier back then. And after years of wind and snow and ice, the cables stretched so that in the high winds in the winter, they would actually blow together and short circuit the system and blow the fuse. But because there was only six houses usually affected, we were very low in the list of priorities for the electricity companies to come out and switch our power back on. So I became fascinated with this idea of being self-sufficient and being able to grow my own food and generate my own electricity so that if there was a problem, I could fix it myself without waiting three or four days for somebody else to come and do it for me. Much like my dad's favourite TV programme from that time was The Good Life, where the couple decided to give up the rat race of life in the city and grow their own food and generate their own electricity and live off the land and within their own means. <laughs> so you're inspired not just by your, your lifestyle, but also by the TV. <laughs> yes, I always love a good comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so wanting to inspire and, and be self-sufficient and learn about sustainability, um, that informed your choice in terms of education and the degree that you chose. In the end, yes. When I was at school, I didn't know engineering was an option. I didn't. I had, don't think I'd even heard the word until I went on a open day to the Glasgow School of Art that technically I shouldn't have been on, but my art teacher convinced me and one of my other fifth-year classmates to sneak out with him and the final-year students. And that was the first time I discovered engineering, and it was product design engineering. And it absolutely combined my love of art and design and creativity with the subjects I was good at which was maths and physics and it was the first time I'd ever realized that I could do both of those things and I didn't have to choose between them. 
That's really interesting because often uh, we do hear people talk about the art of engineering um, and the fact that it was highlighted to you at a visit at a school of art. Yes. It's really interesting. So so you chose uh, product design engineering. Yes. So it was a combined degree with the Glasgow School of Art and Glasgow University. Okay. So was that a four-year degree? What sort of things did you do? So I did the four-year bachelor's degree and uh, one of the best projects we ever did was actually the first project we did in first year. We were introduced to the course in the morning and in the afternoon we were told to go out and find a toy. And then our project was to design a new toy. So pick an age group between three and seven justify our decision and then design a toy for that age group and we had to design it as a production line so we had to design three toys one would be our test piece and one was to be used as an examination piece and the third one was to be used during our examination day where all the lecturers in the art school brought in their children to play with the toys for two hours and see whether they stood the test of actual physical play (laughs) wow so what did you design So funnily enough, I designed a water wheel, (laughs) which uh, seems very appropriate given my work experience now. Yeah, yeah. So even then you were obsessed with renewable, even (laughs) even designing toys, you managed to find a way of making it about renewable energy. Found a way. (laughs) And what did the children think of it? I think the children absolutely loved it. There was one little boy who went around and he became known as Destructor because I think he managed to break 50% of the toys that were on display. (laughs) Luckily, not not mine <laughs> that must have been a, a was that the first sort of uh, testing to failure yes um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely <Excellent>. destructive testing <laughs> yeah absolutely so so that that degree how easy or difficult was it to get a job after graduating I found it very easy to find a job after graduating I think the variety that came with my degree so it was largely mechanical engineering subjects with some electrical and electronics from the Glasgow University side. But the art school decided was entirely design and practical project based. So we had a a, quite a broad grounding and experience. I found a job within two months of graduating, but I know some of my friends that stayed on for their master's year for the fifth year found it a little bit more difficult. Now that could be the job market, it could be where we were looking. I wasn't focused on getting a graduate placement program with one of the big organisations and was more interested in looking for some of the smaller organisations for the kind of broader experience that I ended up getting through that. Whereas I know some of my classmates were only focusing on graduate training schemes. And I think because they're so can be so competitive, they may have found it a little bit harder. And yeah, graduate training schemes often have a, a wide range of criteria and applicants and a whole series of interviews and <laughs> online tests and about seven stages before you can even get to the interview. Yeah. But you wanted to have more diversity in your day-to-day job, so you wanted to find a smaller organisation. Yeah, I think that was part of it. My first job was with a very small organisation uh, based just outside Glasgow, and there was only about 36 people within the whole company. So I ended up doing a little bit of everything every day. So I got to see the procurement side, the purchasing a little bit of the finance and all of the design aspects. So we, I was involved at every stage of the design of every piece of equipment we had within the company, 
Whereas I know some of the bigger organisations you work on a component or an area of a much bigger picture. What type of organisation was it? So this company, they designed offshore lifting and handling systems. So it was a lot of overboarding systems for vessels. So they did lifeboat launch systems, dive bell launch systems. And the main project I ended up working on was a project to design a suite of equipment so it was winches and a-frames and overboarding systems for an oceanographic research vessel that was being built in South Korea. Wow that must have been interesting. That was very interesting and within 10 or 11 months of me joining the company the project manager took ill on a return journey from visiting our clients in South Korea and was unable to fly for 18 months but because I was the nosy new member of the company I had been speaking to all of the different senior engineers covering all the different aspects of the whole project and putting together the certification packages for DNV that I was the only other person in the whole office that knew every aspect of the project so I got asked to go to South Korea to visit our clients and check up on our suppliers there. Now you you said nosy but I think you could (laughs) use the word thorough. Curious maybe. (laughs) curious so what were your first impressions of of going out to the client in South Korea to be honest I was really quite nervous at first because I hadn't done much international travel I'd been on a couple of school trips and only one holiday abroad so and it was the other side of the world we were nine hours ahead in time and didn't know what I was going to didn't know if anyone would speak English but it was absolutely fantastic it was one of the best experiences of my life everybody was so welcoming our clients and our suppliers were so concerned about me being such a young female engineer there by myself that everybody looked after me very well and made sure that I was never lost or alone and always well looked after. What was it like to see some of the um, equipment that you'd been designing and working on being applied in situ it's huge because you stare at it on a computer screen for hours and days and weeks and then when you see it actually manufactured and you realize that it's three meters tall and four meters wide (laughs) it's quite shocking um to try and put that image in your head as what you've been looking at on the screen and i'd been shipping all of the mechanical parts from our warehouse in glasgow putting it all into a shipping container to send it all over to Korea where the fabrication was being made and finally assembled. So it was absolutely fantastic to see the jigsaw piece coming together and all of it being assembled a bit at a time and being able to answer the questions at where things should go and which component was for which piece of equipment. Were there any challenges around the language or um, culture? The biggest challenge was that our fabricators were determined not to disappoint us. So whether they understood a question or not, the answer was always yes. (laughs) So we spent a lot of time saying, don't just say yes, tell us what's happening. (laughs) That's obviously really important that you understood that that's what was happening there. Yes. And one of my colleagues, the senior engineer that came out with me on a couple of the trips, he had a great deal of fun trying to teach the Koreans about um, satirical Scottish humour and sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Fun? (laughs) I think three of them had learned by the end of the (laughs) the project, which made it for very interesting fun. And so how long were you in South Korea? How long was that visit? So I was over for three different visits over the course of 
four months in total. I think it was 11 weeks. Mm. And then um, things changed though after you, so you came back and then you moved on, I understand. Yes. So about a year after that, I was thinking about looking for other opportunities, thinking about trying to get back into the renewable energies, which I'd decided in my final year at university I'd be quite interested in. And I was approached by a recruiter via LinkedIn who had found my CV from when I'd graduated in 2011 and asked if I was still interested in renewable energy. And he set up an interview with Palamas Wave Power in the January of 2013. I think we need to remind everybody or, or tell people who Palamis were. Yes, so Palamis Wave Power were the world's first grid-connected wave energy converter. In the UK in 2004, they had the, the first electricity generated by wave power connected to the grid. So Palamis Wave Power were also nicknamed the Sea Snake. So you may have seen the red Sea Snake symbolic of the Palamas wave energy converter machines. They were also described as like railway carriages. So it was five tubes connected together with hydraulic cylinders. And the way I always explain it to the school children when I'm doing STEM ambassador activities is if you think of the hydraulic cylinders operating kind of like a balloon pump and that as the front, the nose of the machine would go over the wave, the flexible joint between the tubes would move back and forwards. The articulation would move the cylinders back and forward and kind of operate like a balloon pump creating hydraulic back pressure, which was how the electricity was generated. And so what, what was your role in that? So I was brought on in 2013 to help develop the next generation, which was going to be the P3 Palamas Wave energy converter machine, which was supposed to be the world's first commercial prototype of a wave power machine. So it was looking at how we could improve energy capture by changing the shapes of the tubes, by improving the connections of the joints. But one of my main areas was looking at the operations and maintenance aspects. How could we improve the time and costs associated with those components, trying to get off-the-shelf parts to fit and improve access for technicians and make sure all the ergonomics were reasonable for people getting their hands and their elbows into tight spaces to tighten bolts and <laughs> check on systems. So that's really difficult because with any sort of first-time technology, um, finding off-the-shelf solutions and things that are scalable and cost-effective is really difficult. Yes, and as you say, it's never been done before. So a lot of these systems had never been used in the applications that we were looking for them to be used within. So a lot of suppliers then wouldn't give us the guarantees of these bearings will run for 20 years because they've been tested like that. It was always very much of they should work, but we've never tested them like that. So we don't know. Yeah, so that was that would probably, I'd imagine that's one of the challenging things for you. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So we worked quite closely with some of the suppliers and tried to simulate some of our own tests and things as well. So developing test rigs in our own little workshop with our tiny band of engineers yeah. uh, trying to develop representative test conditions, uh, again, entirely of our own creation as well. You must have personally learned a lot from that experience. Absolutely. It was incredible to, as you say, to be at the cutting edge of this brand new technology. Nobody had done it before. And 
as far as we're aware, nobody's quite achieved it since. Well, yeah, that, that, uh, this is the ne- my next question is the wave power didn't take off and Palamis did go into administration. What happened then? Because you were at the company at the time. Yes, so Palamis went into administration in November 2014. So a nice surprise four weeks before Christmas. Um, there was a lot of reasons around that, but mainly it was policy was against wave power at the time, wasn't too interested offshore renewable wind energy was taking off and infrastructure we had major problems with infrastructure in terms of grid connected places we could hook up wave power generation because the most of wave power resource in the UK is around the north and west of Scotland largely off the islands which notoriously have terrible if any grid connection and obviously it's the furthest away from the desired use of all mm. that electricity as well so um, there was a lot of a lot of conflicts there and Palamas obviously collapsed just before Christmas in 2014 so I was we had two days notice which was nice <laughs> um, and trying to find a job again refresh the CV for the first time in two years and um, start looking for a, for a job when nobody's really hiring before Christmas but to show the diversity of engineering, the transferable skills, um, I managed to secure a job within two months of being made redundant and ended up working for a company that did consultation work in the aerospace industry. Wow, so <laughs> you've gone from offshore handling equipment to wave energy to aerospace. Yes. So I had started a master's course when I was with Palamas, a master's in marine technologies, so that I could better understand the environments that we were operating in and some of the the loads and engineering behind that that I hadn't previously had experience of. And the module I had just finished before Christmas was in marine engineering, which had a focus on propulsion systems. So when I was interviewed for my new job uh, in aerospace, I managed to convince my manager that aeroplane intake fans are basically the same engineering principles as a ship's propeller. (laughs) They just operate a thousand times faster. Well, we do. I think we all remember, anybody who did engineering remembers... uh, hydraulics and <laughs> fluid dynamics and and lots of different theoretical characteristics that actually are the same. Absolutely, yes. So the ship propeller blows the water away from the ship to propel it forwards, whereas the, the intake fan in an aeroplane engine does the same. It sucks air into the engine to propel itself forward. So, so what were you doing? Moving into consulting in aerospace, what was your role then? So I was working as a development engineer, which was looking at new components or revamping existing components. The aerospace industry, from my experience, was all about making things lighter and cheaper. So a lot of that around material changes or slight design changes. And every time anything changes, it has to go through rigorous assessment and testing to make sure that it's not going to affect the integrity of the engine because obviously if something goes wrong it's catastrophic 
So I was doing a lot of reviewing of reports from all the different departments, looking at the thermodynamics, the fluid mechanics, the the weight, the materials, all the different areas that needed to be considered within the engine and then compiling that into a single report that would then go to the senior engineer in charge to assess whether it was good to go forward for the final testing and then potentially implementation into the engine. It was a very interesting industry to learn about. I hadn't known much about aerospace before I joined, but I was obviously quite affected by the fact the collapse of Plamis, but I didn't realise that I was actually probably quite depressed until I went on an IMECI site visit tour of a company just along the road who were doing very similar things to Plamis, working at the cutting edge of new developing technologies. And I realised just how much I missed that excitement of day-to-day work. But I was lucky that my old boss knew my current boss And luckily, my old boss didn't know the difference between wave and tidal power. So when my new boss approached him to ask if he had anyone who would be willing to go on a three-month secondment uh, to work on a tidal energy project, they asked if I wanted to come on along and do it instead. So let's, let's, um, to be clear, what's the difference between tidal power generation and wave power generation? So I like to explain again to the children in STEM classes is that wave power is basically stored wind power. So if you think of the way the wind blows across the surface of the sea, it creates ripples, much like when you blow on your tea or your soup. That's the wave power. It's basically kinetic energy from wind. Whereas tidal power is more of the gravitational effects that you talk about when the moon and the earth pulling the mass of the sea back and forwards across the planet. So it's that kind of back and forwards motion that when you go to the beach, sometimes there's a big bit of beach to play on and build sandcastles. And then other times you come back, there's just a little bit of beach where you, you can't build sandcastles. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so, so this was working on tidal projects. So, so tell us a bit about this role. So that tidal project was to design a test rig for a vertical access scale tidal turbine that was to be towed behind a boat to simulate tidal flow uh, so that they would know exactly what the flow was to calculate the output accurately. So it was quite exciting to be designing test rigs again. And who was the employer? Who were you working for? No. This has taken us to your current role. Yes. So I now work for the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. And seven weeks into my three months secondment, I was offered a full time position and I think I cried. (laughs) (laughs) So this so obviously having moved into something, it was fantastic that you were able to use your skills so transferably. But renewable energy and being back in that industry um, obviously made you very happy yeah it's it's so exciting again to be I say as you said at the beginning at the forefront of technology and innovation it's just so exciting Uh, my experience of what I was doing within the aerospace industry was very limited um, and no creative input to the role I had at that time obviously there are other roles within the industry that are very creative but just the one I had was not so, so your ta- your experience of tidal energy. I understand that you've worked on the first grid connected tidal power array. Yes, I've worked with our project partners at Nova Innovation on the world's first grid connected tidal power array, which is based in Shetland. 
Nova Innovation themselves are based in Edinburgh. And two years ago, they won some Horizon 2020 funding from the European Union for a five-year research project into developing a greater understanding around the effects of a tidal array. We know quite a lot of information about how wind turbines interact in a farm environment, but the the flow changes and the turbulence created by tidal turbines under the water is still quite unknown and under a lot of research and development. So we were looking at instrumenting the three turbines that are there currently to guide the development of another three turbines that will be added to the array later in the project and look at the effects of the wake interactions and the turbulence interactions and see if we can force turbulence interactions to see what the structural loading is, to see what potential effects that could have on the further future development of the design and see how far apart we need to put them before we can see no turbulence interactions and experiment with that side of things, as well as obviously looking at the environmental effects. Because if you put things in a flow that changes the flow and how would that potentially affect the, the seabed and the environment around that as well. So the Horizon 2020 funded project is called ONFET. I believe it's got its own website as all these projects are required. And it's a good example of what we do at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. We work with technology innovators, SMEs, academics, basically everybody and anybody who has any interest in the offshore renewable energy industry. And it's our job as the UK's leading centre for innovation in offshore renewables to try and help everybody develop the offshore renewable energy industry and make it better. So that brings us on to to the the, um, wind energy and offshore wind energy. And we've got really ambitious targets, the UK as a whole, uh, with 30 gigawatts being the uh, planned capacity by 2030. Um, And I think we're about just over eight at the moment. So that shows us quite a lot to do if we're going to actually achieve this. Um, So obviously there was the, the sector deal Um, that the government announced for offshore wind. And I'm wondering how Catapult works to support companies who want to be part of that growth. Yeah, the sector deal was a fantastic project across the industry. It kind of galvanised companies together to come up with the ideas. And it was some of my colleagues that were instrumental in actually writing that and presenting it to the government for funding and backing. So we work with all of the companies, obviously, that contributed to the sector deal and working with technology demonstrators, technology innovators to try and develop new technologies to meet the targets of the sector deal. Obviously, the cost of offshore wind power has come down dramatically over the last few years. It was widely publicised last year when it broke the £60 per megawatt hour mark. And that's only going to continue to come down. They're expected the next contracts for difference within the next year or two will be even lower again. And competitive 
potentially with onshore wind as well now that technologies have come so far. It's actually really interesting because I remember looking at the uh, round two, I think it was, offshore wind farms years ago when I first started writing about energy um, and, and infrastructure. And it was a real challenge, actually, offshore construction because it was really risky. It was much more expensive than onshore and took a lot of companies by surprise in terms of it. You couldn't just transfer what you were doing onshore to offshore. So it's interesting to hear that the the market's matured and that the price has fallen. Absolutely, and a lot of that has been through technology development and supplier development. Because I think originally the the offshore wind farms they were they didn't have custom built vessels that they were taking the equipment offshore to build with. They were trying to modify vessels from the oil and gas industry that weren't necessarily fit for purpose in the way that we have lots of equipment and vessels and other things <laughs> <laughs> lots of, yeah, lots of um, bespoke equipment now that's, that's been designed specifically for the purposes of installing offshore wind and the technology of the, the wind turbines themselves is only getting bigger and more efficient as well so the turbines that you were looking at were probably between 2 and 3.6 megawatts that were being installed on mass in the first couple of rounds they're now they're installing nine megawatts and GE are pushing, pushing, pushing ahead to develop their 12 megawatt turbine. So you're talking about 12 times the capacity. Yeah, that's amazing. That brings us on to talk about some of the amazing projects that you're working on now. So, so tell us about the world's largest turbine blade. My colleagues at our test facility down in Blythe in Northumberland have just received the world's largest wind turbine blade. It's 107 metres long, built by LM Wind Power for GE's Haliadex 12 megawatt wind turbine. Wow. Wow. So this this is really happening. This is in testing right now in Blythe. Yes. So it's going through a full range of advanced tests to demonstrate its ability to withstand the wind conditions and show that it's ready for years of operation offshore. So 107 metre long turbine blade. What would we typically see at the moment on an offshore turbine? Well, until this year, the largest operational blades on a wind turbine was actually our demonstration wind turbine over in Fife. That was the one and only wind turbine offshore wind turbine built by Samsung Heavy Industries with some money from the Green Energy Fund from the European Union back in 2013. And it had blades of 83 metres long. Wow, okay, so we're talking a 24 metre... This is, this, this is a huge, this is a quarter of, a quarter on again of the, of the size. Absolutely, it's, uh, there's some videos on YouTube of it arriving in our facility and the I think we should put a link to that in the show notes I think lots of people would like to see this the logistics of moving it around the site and transporting it obviously it's now of such a length that it's very difficult to maneuver yeah (laughs) compared to some of the previous blades that have been tested at our facilities so how do you test something that scale what facilities have they got obliged that means they can do that So the blades will be mounted onto a reinforced wall and the two main tests that we do is that basically it's an accelerated life test of the vibrations that 
you expect the blades to see during operation. So with gusts of wind and, you know, the spinning actions, you get vibrations. And we connect, they call them saddles, round the blades at certain points and basically shake the blades in a predetermined pattern to simulate the vibrations and motions that the blades will see in life. And the other tests are the flexion tests, where basically you statically mount it and you bend it as far as you can uh, or to its predetined loads. Because the, the blades are all composite materials, so they're very light, so that they spin very quickly. But that also means that they're quite flexible. So we need to make sure that the flexibility doesn't stretch so far that it's going to bounce off the tower when it's spinning at high speeds and destroy itself. So, so how long is this testing process? It varies between clients' requirements. I'm not entirely sure how long the GE blade will be tested for, but I do know that they are running a parallel test with three more blades on an offshore wind turbine to um, corroborate results and things. So obviously there's a lot happening in offshore wind at the moment. I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on other offshore energy technologies like tidal and wave um, energy, which haven't had the same sort of level of support that offshore wind has had from a policy perspective. What do you see as the potential for those kinds of, of technologies? Yes, it's really great to see that tidal is still undergoing a lot of research and development. There's a lot of universities around the world and a lot of technology developers still pushing to get that development and have those breakthroughs. Wave power in this country has taken a hit and hasn't quite recovered from 2014, but other countries are still developing wave power. And one of the biggest questions that's been discussed in terms of the net zero and how we can achieve that by 2050 is the problem around energy storage, actually, in that we currently don't really have a reasonable storage capacity. And the comment against wind power a lot of the time is that it's intermittent. So potentially the way forward for storage that there's a lot of research coming around for is hydrogen power because hydrogen can, can be used in hydrogen batteries, but it can also be used as fuel as well. So looking at moving some of the big industry, like ships and trucks and trains towards hydrogen fuel, but it can also be reverted back into electricity if we need that as well. We had a, a brilliant event that Mott McDonald did um, on the hydrogen potential. And I encourage everyone listening to go and listen to the podcast that we did about that because they talk a lot about hydrogen as an energy vector is the term that they use and they talk about its potential for storage. It's such an interesting area that we're just scraping the surface of here at the Catapult, but I know other companies and other research centres are doing a lot more on that. So Lona, you're, you're working in uh, offshore renewable energy and you seem to be really excited by the projects that you're working on and I'm not surprised. Um, what are your plans for the future? My plans for the future are to do everything I can to help this country achieve net zero by 2050. There are so many technology innovations and inspiring people out there trying to make the world a better place and achieve green energy that to have my job is to help people achieve those goals is just incredible. Thank you. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. 
hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, edited by John Young and fact-checked by Rian Owen. Rory Harris is the offshore producer. Special thanks to the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult and in our show notes you can find links to some of their amazing work. Also thanks to the Institution of Engineering and Technology who highlight the work of people like Lorna and our previous interviewee, prospective astronaut Sophie Harker in their Young Woman Engineer of the Year Awards. Please do go and have a listen to that episode if you haven't already. Special thanks too to our episode supporter, Brixies. If you like this podcast, please share it or leave us a comment or review on your podcast app, which really helps others to hear about us. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. And you can follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters, find us on LinkedIn or talk about us on Reddit. If you'd like to work with us to tell stories about engineering that matters, contact Rian, R-H-I-A-N, at rebemedia.com.